Hi, I'm Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to one of my messages from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. Well, I wonder if you've experienced something like this before. You're working on some kind of electronic device, maybe a computer or a cell phone, a printer, something like that, and you encounter some kind of a trouble, some kind of problem that you can't figure out, right? You've kind of exhausted your resources. You've exhausted your resources. You're not sure what to do. So you go onto the website of the manufacturer of the device. You find that call tech support phone number and you wait for probably 30 minutes while you hear some really bad hold music for somebody to respond. And when you finally get a presumably professional tech engineer or something on the other end of the line, and you tell them what your problem is, and you say, I need some help, inevitably, the technician's first question is, have you turned the power on? Anybody had a technician on a support ask you that question? Oh, if only I had thought to turn on the power before I tried to print or write or whatever it is, right? As ridiculous and insulting to our intelligence as that question probably is, it's not very different from the way that many who call themselves Christians and participate in religious activities live their lives. In John chapter 15, where we will be today, Jesus provides a powerful, sobering metaphor to describe the spiritual dynamics of life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we'll find a strong warning in his words, to make sure, in a sense, that the power is turned on in our spiritual lives. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'll invite you to turn to John 15. As you're turning to John chapter 15, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of background and and some reminders uh, from elsewhere in John's Gospel that will help us to understand what Jesus is doing in these verses. Okay, so we've been walking through John's gospel for the last 14 or 15 months. And so I just want to pull out a few things that we've seen to help us have some context for what Jesus is going to say in our passage today. First, remember the point that John is making with this whole book. Actually, his purpose statement is toward the end of the gospel. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says that I have written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, right? The Christ is the Messiah, the one that was anointed as the Savior of God's people, that God would promise and promised and would send to redeem his people. He is the Messiah, the Christ, and the Son of God. He's God himself in the flesh. So what John has been doing is putting forward Jesus as the fulfillment of all God's promises to the Jews. That is, all of the Old Testament. Genesis through, is it Malachi that ends the Old Testament? Top of my head, I can't remember. Uh, But all the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. All right, and so John has been intentionally putting forward Jesus in miracles and speeches 
to demonstrate that he is the answer to all of the promises made to Old Testament Israel, Old Covenant Israel. And all of the questions that you have at the end of the Old Testament are answered in Jesus. That's what John is doing. Let's consider a few of the ways that John's already done this throughout this gospel. Back in chapter 2, we saw Jesus at a wedding take water from purification jars. That is the water that the Jews used for their ritual cleansing. And he turned it into wine. And the point there was that the blood of Jesus would replace the ceremonial washing as the means of being cleansed from sin. So Jesus puts himself as the replacement of these rituals of cleansing, and he would be the source of cleansing. Also, later in John chapter 2, Jesus runs the the money changers out of the temple, what we call the cleansing of the temple, and he's declared, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And of course, the Jews thought that was ridiculous. It's taken us 48 years, some, to build this temple. It's not even yet completed, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? Well, that's not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was foretelling his death and resurrection and announcing that he is the replacement for the temple as the place where God and sinners meet, right? For Old Testament Israel, the temple was where God lived. And so for the people of Israel to come to God, they had to go to the temple and purify themselves and go through all these rituals and things like that and make sacrifices. And that's where God and sinners would meet. Jesus says, I am the new temple, if you will. I am where God and sinners will meet. In John chapter 7 and 8, during the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths, it goes by either of those names, during some rituals involving water that they poured on the altar and a lighting ceremony, Jesus would say of himself, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink living water and he will never thirst again so again he takes the picture of this old covenant ritual with the water on the altar and he says if you're thirsty come to me i'm the source of living water and during this lighting ceremony he says in john 8 12 i am the light of the world whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life what's he doing he's declaring himself over and over to be the fulfillment the replacement of the God-instituted feasts and rituals that reminded the Jews of his provision and salvation. So God put those things in place for Israel. You do these feasts, you do these rituals, you have this Passover, you have these uh, lighting ceremonies and things like that as a reminder of the way that God has met you in your need and provided for you and promised even future salvation for you. And now when Jesus comes onto the scene, he says all of that is answered in me so that's what john has been doing very intentionally putting jesus forward as the fulfillment of all of the old testament now with that backdrop in view i'd like to read for you verses 1 through 11 of john 15 let's keep in mind what jesus is doing as as presenting himself as the replacement the fulfillment of all of the old covenant Speaking to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, he says these words in John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is God's Word. So in this passage, we have one of the great I am statements of John's gospel that Jesus makes. In fact, it's the final of seven such statements that John has recorded for us that indicate some aspect of his divine identity. We've already seen, I am the bread of life, back in chapter 6. I am the light of the world, in John 8. I am the door for the sheep the one by whom the people of God, the sheep of God, come in. I am the good shepherd, in John 10, 11. I am the resurrection and the life, in John 11, verse 25. He said just before he raised Lazarus from the dead. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said in this very conversation in John 14, 6. The only way for a sinner to come to God, the Father, is through Jesus himself. And now, in John 15, 1, we find the seventh and final of these I am statements. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. There's kind of that secondary component to this statement about his Father. So in the remainder of our time together in John 15, we need to answer two questions. Number one. What does this statement tell us about Jesus? By the way, that's the most important thing to get from this text. I love you, but this text is not about you, at least not firstly, and primarily about you. It says some things about you, about me. But first, it's about Jesus. So the first question we've got to ask is, what does this I am statement and how Jesus unpacks it here, what does it tell us about Jesus? That's the most important thing to ask. Number two, what does it mean to be a true disciple? What does it mean to be a true disciple? So let's take those questions in turn. Number one, what does this tell us about Jesus? What do we learn about who Jesus is and his ministry to us through this passage? 
He declares of himself, I am the true vine. Right? So the most important thing we can do is to learn something about Jesus. Namely, what does he mean when he calls himself the true vine? A little bit of Old Testament background will help us here to get some context. Because once again, remember, John in his gospel and obviously Jesus in his actions and words has been concerned to show us that the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. So, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, that is the covenant people of God in that day, were commonly referred to as a grapevine that had been planted by God and that was intended to bear fruit for the nations. That was a common metaphor that the Old Testament used of uh, the people of Israel. And usually with disappointing results. Usually God's intended purpose for this grapevine to bear fruit and to be a light to the nations failed miserably. And they wandered away and they worshiped idols and they did not honor God. In Isaiah chapter 5, we have one good example of this. Let me read the first seven verses of Isaiah 5 to you. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out of a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So something lacking in quality and not what he expected it to bear. So the vineyard again is the people of God, Israel, and the one who planted the vineyard is God himself. It continues, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? In other words, God is saying, I did everything that I could possibly do. I gave you every chance I could give you. I set you up to succeed, and you failed time and time again. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. So in judgment of the vineyard's failure to produce the grapes, the fruit that he wanted it to produce, he is going to let it wither up. He's going to remove his care from it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So we get a little more specific, kind of out of the realm of metaphor there at the end of that passage, where he says he expected from his people justice and righteousness to shine forth the character of God. But instead, he got oppression and violence and bloodshed and an outcry, which is just a sense of God's standard being abandoned. So that's what had happened with the people of Israel as God's covenant people. He had set them up. He had given them promises. He had given them the law. He had told them how to relate to him. And time and time again, they turned their backs. 
they wandered away. And so he judged them. And in fact, if you read the, the rest of the history of, in the Old Testament, the judgment comes in the form of strong nations, foreign nations coming and conquering their land and taking them to, into exile in Babylon. So things have changed a little bit by the time we get to the New Testament, but the, the, the land of Israel is still under now Roman occupation, right? And so the judgment of God in a very real sense and certainly in the ways the Jews would have felt it, is still there. They're still living under his judgment. And so we find this theme of the vineyard of God that's supposed to bear this fresh fruit, having instead borne the fruit of unrighteousness and injustice. So, back to John 15. Just like he's been doing, where there's this water ceremony, and he says, I, I have living water. And there's this light ceremony, he says, I am the light of the world. He does the very same thing here. He takes a common, a known image of the people of God in the Old Testament. And he says, I am the true vine. What does that mean? The old is past. We're not operating in the same way anymore. The people of Israel are no longer God's covenant people. God's covenant people are those who find themselves in me. In Jesus, that's what he is setting himself as the fulfillment of, the replacement of Old Testament Israel as his people. So essentially he's saying the way to be connected to God, that is to be God's people, to bear fruit, is to be connected to Jesus Christ himself. So if you want to bear fruit, if you want to be a child of God, you got to be connected to Jesus, right? That's what that means and so in this way he's echoing what he just told his disciples in john 14 6 when he said i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me if you want to be connected to the life of god to be counted as one of his to experience the eternal life that he provides jesus christ is the only way that's what he's doing here so to answer this first question what does I am the true vine, tell us about Jesus. We could say that Jesus is a sinner's only point of connection to God and the only source of spiritual life. Anything apart from Jesus fails. It's empty. It yields no fruit. It yields wild grapes, to use the language of Isaiah chapter 5. So when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he is saying, if you want to be connected to God, if you want to be a child of God, if you want the spiritual life that God gives, you have to come through me. That is through Jesus himself. That's the nutshell, I think, of what Jesus is saying by saying, I am the true vine. So the second question really unfolds and unpacks what that means for us, for his disciples or those who want to be his disciples. So the question we ask now is, what does it mean to be a true disciple? And the answer to that question really expresses the same truth, but it comes at it from a different angle, namely from our perspective, from the vantage point of a fallen human being seeking eternal life with God. But before we answer the question, I need to first point out something that's implied by the question itself. 
So the question, again, as I've worded it, is what does it mean to be a true disciple? The implication is that not all disciples are true disciples. It's possible to be a pretend disciple or a self-deceived disciple. To think that we're connected to God, that our power is turned on, if you will, when in fact we do not belong to him. That is a distinct possibility, and it's a sobering thought. So that's what we're going to look at first. We want to see some red flags, if you will, in these verses that point out the possibility of a kind of fake discipleship. Or we might think we're following Jesus, but really we don't belong to him. Let's look at a couple of these in the text. Number one, God is said to be the vine dresser. That is the gardener. He's the one who takes care of the grapevine, right? His work is to tend to the grapevine to be sure that it's healthy and poised to grow rich, fresh fruit. That's what he's supposed to do. Here's one of his key jobs as a vine dresser. In verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. A vine dresser in a vineyard would go up and down the rows of plants, carefully looking for any branches that are unhealthy or dead or withered and clearly not properly connected to the vine, and he'd cut it off. Because those things are probably draining the sap from the nearby branches that could be healthy, but it's hanging on. And it needs to be removed. And so he would go down the row and cut off the dead branches. And then he'd go back through and gather up all those branches that he had cut off and then burn them, right, to get rid of them. So that's one part of the job of God the Father, the vine dresser, is to find the dead branches and remove them. Staying in the metaphor, now down in verse 6, the metaphor continues. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So now the vine dresser has gone down the row and gathered up the dead withered branches and tossed them in a pile and burned them. So they are out of the way. They're gone. They're not part of the vine, the grapevine anymore. And in fact, they're really not part of the grapevine anymore because they never were a part of the grapevine truly to begin with. They were never really connected. So this is metaphorical, so let's make it plain. Let's get into where we speak and live. Most of us are probably not experts in grapevine planting, myself included. So to make it plain, some people who appear to be connected to the vine, that is, they appear to be Christians, are in reality not connected to the vine, that is to Jesus, at all. They are spiritually dead and not bearing any fruit and will ultimately be removed from the grapevine of the life of God and cast away. Some who appear to be Christians really aren't, is what it comes down to. And I believe that many of those people believe that they are. And if you ask them, are you a Christian? They say, yeah, sure, of course I'm a Christian. But they're not connected to Jesus in a meaningful way. So Jesus has actually, in this text, drawn our attention quite recently to just such a pretend disciple. Anybody remember someone we've talked about recently who was a pretend disciple? 
Go ahead and shout it out if you remember. Judas. That's the most obvious example, not just because it's close by, because he's talked to his disciples about that in this context, but because it's such a glaring, treacherous, sort of horrifying example that this guy could spend three years of his life living with Jesus, hearing the teachings of Jesus, watching the miracles of Jesus. It tells us in the gospel that he actually guarded the money bag for the disciples. So he had a job, a service, if you will, in his little church community. And it turned out he never belonged to Jesus in the first place. That's terrifying. That ought to make us pause. It ought to give us reason to consider. But the truth is, beyond Judas, who appears, obviously, proved to be a fake, we've seen these kind of phony disciples elsewhere in John's gospel. Back in chapter 2, after the turning of water into wine, uh, John tells us in verse 23 that, that many believed in him, yet Jesus knew what was in their hearts, and he did not entrust himself to them. Which kind of sounds like, they believed on some surface, superficial level, like, wow, that guy's got cool stuff. That guy can do amazing things. I believe that he just turned water into wine because I saw that. So they believed in some way, but there was not a real heart, humble recognition of who Jesus was and their need for him. So their belief in him was superficial. Same thing in John chapter 8, verse 30. There were many who believed, at least said they believed, but then eventually they wandered away. So Jesus had some disciples who turned from him. In fact, it's at the end of John chapter 6, I believe, he's just fed a multitude of thousands with basically a lunchable, miraculously. And so he's got this big crowd of people following him, and then he starts saying, I'm the bread of life, and if you eat my flesh, you will live forever, and if you drink my blood, you will have eternal life. And people go, what? This guy's insane. And they turn and walk away. And then it says Jesus turns to his 12 disciples, one of them being Judas, who we know isn't even a real disciple, and he says, are you ready to leave too? And that's where Peter goes, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. I love that response by Peter. But he's down to 11, right? He had a multitude of thousands, and he went to 11. So apparently there were crowds of people that followed Jesus in some way, that believed in him at some superficial level, but when it came down to it, they were not willing to give themselves to him. Their belief in him was superficial, proves to be something less than a spirit-born, that is Holy Spirit-born, heart-level trust in Jesus for salvation. So, let me offer a word of exhortation. If you listen to that description of a pretend disciple, of someone whose belief in Jesus is only on the surface, but there's no real spiritual fruit in his life, and you think to yourself, that kind of describes me. I don't really see any spiritual fruit when I look at my life. I don't really regard Jesus as that like, integral or important to my daily life. Please repent of your sins. And trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. It's not too late. If you're within the hearing of God's word, he's calling. There's an opportunity to respond. Confess to him your superficial connection to the vine. God, I don't think I've really been truly connected. Will you help me? Invite him to unite your heart to his by faith in a soul-saving, life-giving new relationship. There is opportunity. It's not too late. 
And it's good for us all to examine ourselves. The Apostle Paul says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. I think it's good for us to do from time to time. I don't mean we ought to live with this sort of like constant paranoia about like, am I in, am I out? Am I Christian, am I not? I don't know. I think I am, but maybe I'm not. I'm not saying we should all live afraid of the fact that maybe we're not actually Christians in the first place. I don't think that's what the Bible has for us either. I don't think that's what the Spirit of God in us, crying out, Abba, Father, I don't think that's what he intends for us to do. But from time to time, it's good to be reminded, you know what, there are people who think they're Jesus followers, and they're not. Let me just make sure that that's not where I am. Let me make sure that I am yielding my life, giving my heart to him. All right, so that's kind of the negative angle, right? What is a true disciple? Well, we've talked about what a fake disciple is, right? So by implication, we know what a true disciple isn't. So let's talk a little bit more positively. What does it mean to be a true disciple? I think the most succinct answer, the quickest, best answer to that question comes in verse 5. You got a lot here about abiding and bearing fruit and connecting and all this. In verse 5, he summarizes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. What does it mean to be a true disciple? It means to remain connected to him. There's at least two aspects of of true discipleship that show up over and over in this passage. Let's take a quick look, just walking through these verses and looking for two particular phrases that you will learn very quickly repeat themselves quite often. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Okay, you're already seeing. Abide in me, bear fruit. Let's keep it going. In verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. That's at least a part of what it means to, to abide in Jesus is to let his word be a part of our lives, to abide in us. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. More on that in a second. Verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And what? So prove to be my disciples. Again, in contrast to the fake disciple. The one who thought he was connected to the vine, but never really was. And so he gets removed. Right? Prove to be my disciples. How? By bearing much fruit fruit. Verse 9, abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Abide in Jesus, bear much fruit, over and over in these 11 verses. Jesus is repeating these phrases. So in answer to the question, what does it mean to be a true disciple? To use the biblical language, it means abide in Jesus and bear fruit. Abide in Jesus and bear fruit. And I think abiding in Jesus has to do with faithful 
connection to him over time. My favorite definition of the word faithfulness is a book title by Eugene Peterson. I've actually never read this book. I kind of always wanted to, but haven't. But he has a book that's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I just think you can't define faithfulness any better than that. A long obedience in the same direction. I think that expresses something of this reality of abiding in Christ. Over the long haul in my life, I am pursuing, I am obeying, I am listening to his words and following through on what he says and moving in the same direction as toward him. Abide in me. It could also be translated remain in me. Some of the translations, English translations, may use the word remain. So again, I think there's this long-term uh, commitment and actually playing out in our lives of being connected to him and letting his words abide in us. And then bearing fruit. Well, obviously you're not going to produce grapes, right? So that's the metaphor part. So what does it mean when you bring that into real life? I think we're talking about spiritual fruit. Right? I think we're talking about a life that resembles Jesus himself. There's probably more that could be said about that, but what I want to do at this point is kind of make a few final observations. There's five of them actually, exactly. A few final observations on this passage. Number one, so these are kind of takeaways. Like as we read this, sit with this for a minute, Here's some things I think we need to walk away with. Number one, a disciple of Jesus bears fruit. A disciple of Jesus bears fruit. The New Testament simply doesn't know of a Christian who lives a fruitless life. And Jesus doesn't allow any room for it here. Because if there's somebody that, that claims to be a Christian or looks like a Christian, but they have no fruit, the conclusion he draws is they're not connected. They're, they don't belong to me. They're not a part of the vine. John himself in one of his letters later would say that, that there would be many that would go out from us. But the reason they go out from us is because they were never one of us. Same kind of idea. People on the surface appear to be Christians. Maybe they have some religious trappings in their life. A Bible on the shelf, a cross on the wall, go to church every now and then, give some money at Easter or something like that. But there's no real spiritual fruit in their lives. The New Testament simply doesn't have a category for a Christian who doesn't bear any fruit. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are God's workmanship and he created us for good works that we should walk in them. All right? That he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you're not bearing any fruit in your life, you may not truly belong to Jesus. I think that is an implication of what Jesus is saying here. You may have not yielded your life to him by faith and invited his forgiveness and new life. Again, it's not too late. You can do that by calling on him and inviting him to come into your life. But that's the first takeaway from this. A disciple of Jesus bears fruit, period. That doesn't mean he's perfect. That doesn't mean he doesn't struggle with sin still and have stuff to confess like we just did a few minutes ago in our worship service. We have stuff to confess all the time. But I think part of the fruit that a Christian bears is confession and repentance of his sin. It doesn't mean we get perfect. I don't wrestle with sin anymore. It means I recognize my sin. I recognize Jesus is the one with the grace to cover it and I go to him. Lord, I have sinned. Forgive me. 
I think that's part of what spiritual fruit looks like in the life of a Christian. So number one, a disciple of Jesus bears fruit. Number two, and this will help us understand uh, fruit a little bit. Fruit in this context is spiritual fruit that flows from our connection to the vine, the vine being Jesus himself. In other words, bearing fruit means seeing in our lives visible manifestations of the character and life of Jesus in us. Bearing fruit means seeing in our lives visible manifestations of the character and life of Jesus in us. The more we come to know him, the more we let his words abide in us, the more we come to him faithfully over time and obey his commands, the more we start to look like him. I think what fruit is about. You could, I think of Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, where Paul tells us about the fruit of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, capital S. The fruit of the Holy Spirit living in us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's Jesus stuff. That's the character of Jesus worked out in our lives. That's spiritual fruit. Number three, a true fruit-bearing Christian will experience the loving pruning of God, the vine dresser. We don't like to think about that, but that's what Jesus said in verse two, right? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, that means a true disciple, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So that vine dresser, again, is not just cutting away the dead branches. He's also finding branches that are truly connected to the vine, maybe bearing some fruit, but it could be stronger. And so he's clipping away the excess stuff around it, right? So that it has more room. It can receive more of the nutrients from the vine and grow stronger. That's what God, the vine dresser, does in our lives. He cuts stuff away that'll make us more like Jesus. It's not always fun. It's not always easy. It's usually painful. Trials, suffering, burdens, hardships in life. We're very quick to go, that's all Satan. Satan's attacking me. Could just as well be that the vine dresser is pruning you. The vine dresser sees there's stuff in your life that's keeping you from growing in me, that's keeping you from bearing more fruit. And so we're going to get rid of it. In Hebrews chapter 12, we have a beautiful description of how the Lord relates to us in this way as a loving father. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, every son is disciplined by his loving father. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Kids, right? We don't love discipline. You don't love it when your parents correct you, right? This doesn't feel very good. 
but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Friends, the vine dresser may be pruning things away from your life because he loves you, because he's disciplining you so that you'll be trained by it and bear the fruit of righteousness in your life. Number four, abiding in Jesus looks like learning his word and obeying his commands. It's all over the place in here. Verse three, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. That is the message about Jesus going to the cross and taking our sins. Verse seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. There's a connection between obeying Jesus and loving Jesus, which he made for us back in verse, I think, 15 of chapter 14, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Same idea here. Obedience is love. How do we show love to Jesus? We obey. Remember the old love languages thing? Love languages, words of affirmation or affection or quality time, whatever. Jesus' love language is obedience. If you love Jesus, you will keep his commands. You will strive to keep his commands. And when you fail to keep his commands, you'll repent of that and confess to him. And then finally, abiding in Jesus leads to abundant joy. I don't want to stop without saying something about this first. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is not bad news. Feels like bad news when you talk about pruning. I don't want God to prune stuff off of my life. Can I just stay the way that I am? I'm okay with that. No, it's going to be better for you in the long run, for me to prune this stuff away from your life, for you to endure hardship and trials and suffering so that on the other side of this, you'll look more like Jesus. You resemble him more. You'll have not just joy, but his joy. That's what he said, that my joy may be in you. Friends, I want the joy of Jesus. If we want the joy of Jesus, we've got to abide in him. We've got to stay connected to the vine and allow him in his word to teach us, instruct us, to train us, and to prune us when necessary so that we might bear more fruit and prove to be his disciples.